to Luke's Gospel. This morning we are in chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And we'll read through chapter 4, verse 30. Luke chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 4, verse 30. While you're turning, uh, we covet your prayers this next week. Actually, for about the next uh, two weeks, I'll be leaving on Thursday uh, with my folks and with my Aunt Kay to go to Oregon. Uh, we'll be attending the memorial service of uh, my my Aunt Laura, and so uh, we'll be with family, and as you know, that's a good thing, and sometimes it's not a good thing. So uh, we, we uh, pray for just any more timely travel is a, is a good thing to have, and for the time together with family. And then uh, I'll get back, and then on Valentine's Day, uh, Nathaniel is abandoning his parents. And uh, so that's it's the day that he leaves for basic training. It, it is, those of you who are parents can sort of commiserate with this. It's kind of like you raise these people, right? And then they turn out to be decent human beings and you like to hang out with them. And then the turkeys leave. And it's like, what in the world? Do you not realize all the hard work we did to make you worth talking to? And then you leave. Oh, anyway. So if at some point in the next two weeks you call our house or you talk to Amy and I and we are just a hot mess, you'll know why. Uh, so please... Extend grace to us. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, now 
we come to this text and we pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, but Father, also give us hearts that are obedient to your will and to your word. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there a driving passion or vision for your life? If there is, how do you articulate that driving passion or vision to other people? And when you articulate that vision that drives your life to people who know you well, or at least think they do, how do they respond when you have shared that driving passion, that driving vision, that thing that animates your very life, that thing that animates why you do what it is that you do? Our text for this morning tells us of Jesus coming out party in his hometown of Nazareth. These are his neighbors. The folks who have known him, uh, we know for at least 20 some odd years, sometime between when he was 11 and he went to the temple and sometime when his family returned from Egypt, so probably from age three up until age 30, these are the people that Jesus did life with. They've watched him grow up. They saw him each day go to work with Joseph as a carpenter. And there were probably more than a few raised eyebrows when Jesus turned 15 years of old, 15 years of age, and here's this nice Jewish boy, very polite, wonderful manners, knows the scriptures backward and forward. His mother has nothing but good things to say about him, and yet he goes unmarried. Probably even more eyebrows were raised when he left home at age 30 to take up the mantle of itinerant preacher. Well, Jesus has been gone for a little over a year. In that year, he's been around the region of Capernaum, and reports have begun to come back to Nazareth of all the wonderful things that he has done, of his incredible deeds and his insightful teaching. And now, after a year of absence, he returns to his hometown. Now, they get to lay eyes on and speak into the life of this hometown phenomenon. Will Jesus be swayed by that? Will Jesus be moved by the sweet little ladies who say, you know... I knew you when. Will Jesus' ministry or mission change because of the words of the elders, the men that he grew up imitating, the men that he grew up knowing and being known by? A big idea for this morning, we see what's going to drive Jesus' life. In the ministry of Jesus, the Spirit of God, Word of God, and mission of God come together. In the ministry of Jesus, the Spirit of God, Word of God, and mission of God come together. So let's look at those three. First, Jesus is led by the Spirit. In verses 14 and 15, Luke gives us a really interesting summary of what's happening in Jesus' life. He ends in verse 
13, we're told that having succeeded again against Satan and the temptations that he brings against him, Satan leaves. We read in other Gospels that angels minister to him. And then immediately Jesus goes into ministry. He doesn't return to Nazareth straight off. Rather, he's in the area of Capernaum. So he's in sort of the northern edge of what would have been uh, Israel in Roman times. And there, sort of quietly at first, he begins to do these wonderful miracles. He begins to do these miraculous deeds, and he's doing this kind of teaching that leaves just everyone dumbfounded. And we're told that all of that happens because of the power of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the, the, the method of Jesus' ministry and where he's going to do ministry, he's not doing it in essence in his own strength or in his own power. It's not his own plan. But rather, Jesus is doing his ministry having been led by and empowered by the Spirit of God. Now, one of the really unfortunate things about this particular text is I wish that Luke would sort of give us a parenthesis and say, oh yeah, and by the way, being led by the Spirit looks like this. If you want a checklist of what it means to be led by the Spirit of God in your life, here's what it is. Here's the first thing, here's the second thing, right? Sort of like a, a pre-flight checklist. Now I can know if I just do these things, I'm being led by the Spirit of God. And if you could throw in some kind of cool like Jedi mind trick stuff, that would be even better. But he doesn't tell us that. He simply states the fact and then moves on. So let me ask you a question this morning. What exactly does it look like to be led by the Spirit of God? What does it look like to do life in the power of the Spirit of God? I grew up in a tradition that said there uh, should be a kind of second baptism or a kind of a second birth. Yes, the first time you're born into Christ, but then the second time, the second baptism, uh, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. They got that from a misreading of an event in the book of Acts. Does doing life in the power of the Spirit mean that you speak in tongues? Does it mean that on a Sunday morning, you just can't help it, you got to stand up and dance because the Spirit's moving you? By the way, be grateful. I'm not a good dancer. Does it mean that you have some sort of insight or vision or some kind of word of knowledge? It means you're living life, you're doing life, you're operating in the power of the Spirit. Well, Luke's going to give us a hint towards an answer. But let's just understand, before we get to the hint of an answer, let's just understand that part of the, the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the way that he yields his life and the way that he lives his life not in his own will, not in his own strength, not in his own might, not in his own power. But at every step of the way, Jesus is fully yielded 
to a Trinitarian life. The ministry he does, he does in the power of the Spirit. When he goes into the wilderness, he does so because he's led by the Spirit. He, when he teaches, he says to people, listen, these aren't my words. These are the words of my Father. When he does great and wonderful things, he says, listen, these aren't my deeds. These are the works of my Father. Part of Jesus' perfection isn't just that he didn't do anything that he wasn't supposed to do. But part of Jesus' perfection is the fact that in every aspect of his life, he is yielded and sensitive and listening and obedient to the leading of the other two members of the Trinity. He's led by the Spirit. He ministers in the power of the Spirit. He's obedient to the will of the Father. He speaks the words of the Father. Well, secondly, and now we get to see some hint of an answer to the question, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit or to be working in the power of the Spirit? Jesus goes into Nazareth, and it is his custom. By the way, this was a really interesting quote I found from A.T. Robertson. A.T. Robertson was one of the foremost Greek scholars in the entire world. He taught at uh, my alma mater at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And in, in talking about this verse, he had to throw this in because Southern Baptists can be a little legalistic, right? He just says, hey, it was his custom. Why? Because he was raised there. And he points out, if you didn't instill it in the boy, you're probably not going to see it in the man. It's true. It can be a little legalistic, but it's true. So here's Jesus. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Because he's over the age of 30 and because he can read, he's called upon to read in front of God's people in church. He takes the scroll. Now, he wouldn't have had all the books in one handy little thing like we do. They would have pulled out a scroll. It would have been the scroll of Isaiah and he would have stood there and he would have opened it up and there was either a reading for the day or again, led by the Spirit, Jesus comes to Isaiah chapter 61. He reads it. Now, here's what we need to know about Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 obviously follows the suffering servant passages in Isaiah, the things that we looked at a couple years ago, which speaks of God's servant being crushed, God's servant being humiliated. And the reason that God was doing all this is because he was laying the sins of his people upon his servant. And now, beginning in Isaiah chapter 60, through Isaiah chapter 66, God is giving us this wonderful vision of what the new heavens and the new earth is going to look like. Of what it's going to mean for his people to be called back from exile, not just to Babylon or Assyria, but what God's ultimate plan for his creation is going to look like. And we learn in Isaiah chapter 60 through Isaiah chapter 66 that all of those plans for the future hope of God's people, the new heavens, the new earth, all of it flows through the Messiah. So when Jesus reads a text that talks about this wonderful coming year of Jubilee, this text that's going to happen when God fulfills all of his covenant promises, not just to his people, but also to creation. When Jesus reads the text, hands it back, 
and sits down. And everybody looks at him. And then Jesus says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You know what he's saying? I'm the Messiah. The one who's going to bring about the, heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, I'm that guy. Now, not surprisingly, his third grade Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Buller, looks at her neighbor and says, isn't that Joseph's boy? His sixth grade Sunday school teacher, they were a couple actually, Mr. and Mrs. Farrell, they look at one another and they're like, wait a minute, uh, we have a table in our house that that guy built for us. His youth pastor looks at his wife and goes, hey, don't you remember when, uh, when that young man and his dad, they came and they fixed our roof? They're saying, wait a minute, Jesus, you, you just, you can't say that. We know you. We know who you are. You can't be that person. One of the things that's really interesting about this text for this morning is that it is Jesus using God's word, telling us exactly what his ministry and his mission is going to be about. Jesus doesn't sit down and say, well, folks, here's the deal. I'm going to read this text. I'll tell you what I think about it later. But before I do, there are some folks coming around with surveys. We'd like you to fill them out because we're trying to figure out sort of what we think the Messiah ought to look like. I'm not saying I'm him. We just, we want to get a, a sense of your felt needs. We want to kind of know where the market is. We want to get some understanding of, of if we say the word Messiah, do you equate that favorably or unfavorably? No, it's God's word that's going to shape and form and fill out Jesus' understanding of what he's here to do. Not popular opinion, not popular expectation, and not what God's people think they may or may not know. Rather, it's the word of God that's going to inform what the Son of God is going to be about. And we like that about Jesus until we don't. For we oftentimes can get confused and we think, hey, wait a minute, uh, Jesus, you're 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 the Savior. You're you're the second person of the Trinity. That's great. You have this vast, immeasurable power. You're my Savior. All these things are wonderful. Um, but listen, um, I, I I I it would be great. Um, and again, I'm not. I'm just saying it would be cool. Could you do this differently? Could you serve as more of a consultant and less of a king? Are there some things about this whole taking up your cross business that we could sort of negotiate? Because that sounds, that sounds really all in. And I got some other things I'm kind of working on. 
Jesus understands that his ministry, that his mission, that his life, all of it is formed and shaped by God's word. We love that for Jesus, but we don't so much love it for ourselves. We want Jesus to be a Jesus after our own making. And we mistakenly think that we're the ones sort of driving the car. And yet, if we really are apprentices of Jesus, if Jesus' life and mission and ministry is formed and shaped by God's word, shouldn't our lives be the same? And yet in the question I asked at the beginning, do you have a a driving passion? Do you have a, a sort of mantra? Do you have a a mission that drives your life, how many of us would say, well, yes, and here it is from Scripture. Or if we do, we do it sort of lamely. Right? Uh, Have I not commanded you, don't be afraid. We throw some sort of, we proof text our way through it. It's ridiculous. Instead of understanding, that is, just as Jesus allowed his life and ministry to be shaped and fulfilled and filled out by God's word, so too we who are apprentices of Jesus need to have our lives defined and shaped and filled out. The mission of our life should be absolutely shaped, formed, saturated, with God's word. Let me put it in plain English. If the mission for your life is to be happy, that's not a biblical mission. If the mission for your life is to make a lot of money, it's not a biblical mission. If the mission for your life, though, is something like, I want to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with my God, it's a good start. If the mission for your life is to say, hey, um, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We can work with that. But just as Jesus lets his life, his ministry, his mission be shaped and filled out and fulfill God's word, so too we who are his apprentices need to do the same thing. Thirdly, then, it's not just about the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And and by the way, let me stop, because I said it's a hint at the answer. Uh, What does it mean to be led by the Spirit or do something in the power of the Spirit? Note that Jesus immediately in verse 18 is quoting God's Word. See, friends, there's within the Scriptures, there's an inseparable link between the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And so here's the thing. If you want to know what the Spirit of God would say to you, if you want to know what the Spirit of God would have you do, or would, uh, if you want to be led by the Spirit, get your nose in the book. Because in the book, God's Spirit speaks to God's people. It's not as though the Spirit is giving us some sort of extra biblical word. That's nonsense. The Spirit of God speaks to the people of God through the Word of God. Let me say that again. The Spirit of God speaks to the people of God through the Word of God. Thirdly, then, we see that Jesus is engaged in God's mission. 
Jesus is in, engaged in God's mission. Uh, Jesus uh, defining himself and applying this messy, this wonderful messianic promise of new heavens and new earth to himself just doesn't jibe with the folks in his hometown. His Sunday school teachers don't buy it. The nice lady, Mrs. Kravitz, who lived across the street from him, she doesn't buy it either. And so what do they do? Well, Jesus realizes what's going on, and he quotes to them a proverb. It's not a proverb from the Bible. It's a, it's a, it was a very popular proverb in Roman times. Well, physician, heal yourself. And what it meant was uh, physicians back in, 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 in ancient days were good at saying, hey, this stuff looks really potent. I think it'll work. I think it'll heal you. Here, here, Carrie, take this draft of stuff that might kill you or it might heal you. I'm not really sure. So one of the, the standards for physicians in the ancient world was if I'm going to prescribe this draft of whatever to you, I should probably be willing to take it myself. So physician, heal yourself. Hey, what you did out there, we need you to do this as well. And now Jesus goes from preaching to meddling. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And they're like, okay, what's all this mean? And Jesus says to them, what it means is you don't really understand God's mission. Why am I up in Capernaum? Why am I doing these things, calling folks who are Samaritans, calling people who aren't part of quote-unquote true Israel? Why am I doing my ministry among them? Why am I not doing it here? Because God's mission has always been for the nations, not just for Israel. God's plan has always been to redeem all of fallen humanity, not just the genetic descendants of Abraham and Sarah. And so he quotes to them, he reminds them of two wonderful stories in the Old Testament. One from 1 Kings in the life of Elijah, and the other from 2 Kings that Colleen read for us so beautifully from 2 Kings chapter 5. And he's telling them, listen, do you not understand that God's heart has always been for the nations? God's mission has never just been about Israel. But God's heart has always been that Israel would be a light to the nations. After all, when he makes his covenant with Abraham, he says, listen, I'm doing this so that through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. God's mission has always included all of fallen humanity. And Israel doesn't like that, and Israel doesn't get it. And so he says, hey, listen, <laughs> let me tell you about Elijah. Do you really think during a three-and-a-half-year drought there was only one widow who didn't have sufficient food to eat? Well, riddle me this, Batman. Why did God send Elijah to the land of Sidon to the widow of Zarephath? Do you really think that in the days of Elisha, there weren't any lepers in Israel? No, in fact, look at what he tells them in verse 27. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, Elisha, and yet none of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian 
you remember what Colleen read for us about Naaman the Syrian? Naaman the Syrian was public enemy number one in Israel. Naaman the Syrian was the guy who was the literal thorn in the side of God's people. He would bring his bands of marauders across the line. He would burn crops. He would steal grain. He would carry children into captivity. In fact, the little girl who tells him about the prophet Elisha is a little girl who was captured by Naaman on one of the raids into Israel. The Bible tells us, it's a great phrase in Hebrew, he's a godol ish. He's a mighty man. But is it one of the lepers in Israel who gets cleansed? No, it's the most unlikely leper you could ever even imagine. It's the leper who's the thorn in the side of God's people. And Jesus is saying to them, listen, don't you get it? That's always been God's heart. God's heart has always been for the nations. God's heart has always been for the really unlikely people. God's heart has always been for the guy that goes out and persecutes the church. And they're going to hear about it again when the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus hears from the resurrected Christ, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Friends, that's always been God's heart. His mission has always been to the nations, not just the good people, not just the moral people. And let's remember, as we've been going through Luke's gospel, we've said the melodic line of, of Ruth, of, of Ruth, melodic line of Luke, is that the gospel is for everybody. Your public enemy number one against God's people? Hey, don't worry. Your name could be Naaman. Or your name could be Saul. God has a heart for you. That's always been his mission. And not surprisingly, just as God's heart has always been for the nations, the heart of Israel has always been hard. Look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They drive him out of town. They take him to the cliff on which the town was built. And they decide that they're going to throw him down the cliff. Why? Because he's reminding them of God's mission. And they, as their forefathers did, as their forefathers did, are dead set on rejecting God's mission. They will not obey. They do not understand God's heart. And they have no concept that the gospel is for everybody. Do we? One of the really interesting things in talking with uh, the folks at Columbus and kind of going back and revisiting some things uh, that we looked at in church planning and just thinking about uh, what's what 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 it means to plant a church and uh, it, it's a it's an exciting thing and at the same time it it makes me almost sick to my stomach because there is a sense in which it's easy to grow it's easy to draw a crowd of like-minded people 
it's easy to draw a crowd of people who like things that you like and uh, who you can kind of do the relational math and figure out how folks got here. It's easy to go, oh, well, we're all uh, roughly of the same ethnicity. We all roughly vote the same way. We're all kind of at the same point in life. Well, that's, that's not a church. It's a religious social club. See, in a church, you're going to look around and you're going to think to yourself, uh, how in the world is that person even here? And you're going to look around and you're going to think to yourself, you know what? Uh, outside of Jesus and the gospel, I would never hang out with that individual. I just wouldn't do it. And if you look around morning by morning and, and you never see anyone as God's people are gathered together, you never see anyone in the building that makes you go, you know what? Uh, not only would I probably not hang out with you, I probably would sort of go to the other side of the street when I saw you coming. If it wasn't for Jesus and the gospel, then what you have is not a church. But if you have that, if you have that, then you can know, yes, we're engaged in God's mission. The gospel is for everybody. And being engaged in God's mission means that we understand that God has a heart for even those folks who are seeking to persecute God's people. Those who we would go, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if we want them in the building. Those are the people that God has a heart for. In a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And the Lord's table, Paul says, as he's chewing out the Corinthians for making a mess of it, the Lord's table, among other things, is an expression of unity. You see, the Corinthian church would have been filled with all kinds of different folks. You would have had Roman citizens. You would have had uh, what they would have called free people. They once were slaves, but they were given their freedom. You would have had slaves. You would have had rich Poor. You would have all different sorts of ethnicities represented because the Roman Empire took whatever they wanted and just sort of moved it around. And week by week, God's people gathered together around a table. And Paul says, don't you understand that the table is an expression of our unity? It's an expression of the fact that we're indwelt by the Spirit, that we bow the knee to the Word, and we are commonly engaged in God's mission. And he reminds them, this is not merely a ceremony that you do, but this is a spiritual feast. So friends, this morning, the great thing is, we're not all in the same, uh, we're not all in the same sort of uh, uh, demographic group in terms of income. We're not all in the same age range. With a couple of exceptions, we're pretty much all in the same ethnic group. But it's a reminder to us that what unites us aren't external things, but what unites us is Jesus and the gospel. What unites us is the indwelling of God's spirit. And so by faith together as a family, we're going to feast spiritually on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to remember and we're going to be strengthened until Jesus comes again.
Let's pray. Father, thank you now for your word. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to come to your table. Father, uh, we're, we're grateful this morning that uh, being led by the Spirit and doing life in the power of the Spirit uh, doesn't mean we, we got to sort of, that uh, we have to start dancing and talking funny and doing things. And we, uh, but we, we, we earnestly pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who think that's part of the deal. One of us is wrong. And so, Father, uh, help us in, our hum in, in humility to hold to our position, to do so winsomely, to do so biblically. Father, we bless you this morning that what unites us is Jesus in the gospel, and that's greater than uh, what divides us. And Father, we pray that a Grace Church would more and more reflect the reality of the gospels for everybody. That it wouldn't just be sort of uh, strictly along party lines, that it wouldn't be strictly along socioeconomic lines, that it wouldn't be strictly along ethnic lines. But the Father, more and more, those whom you have gathered each week around word, prayer, and sacrament would reflect your heart for everybody. For we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.